It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Whether in the grip of a drug-induced psychosis, a psychopathic fantasy, or paranoid schizophrenia, Daniel Gonzalez had left two injured and four dead in his two-day killing spree. But with a kill list of at least ten, the next life he would take would be his last. Murder Mile is researched using authentic sources. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 138, Daniel Gonzalez, The Lost Boy, Part 4. Today, I'm standing on Lamb's Conduit Street in Hoburn, WC1. Three and a half miles south of the double murder of Derek and Jean Robinson, one mile northwest of Daniel's criminal trial at the Old Bailey, one mile northeast of his arrest at the Tottenham Court Road Tube, and 34 miles north of his incarceration at Broadmoor Psychiatric Prison, coming imminently to Murder Mile. Situated off Theobald's Road, at 10 Lambs Conduit Street, currently sits the Hoban Police Station. Built in the 1960s, it's an ugly monstrous block of reinforced concrete with flat dark windows and an imposing 15-story office block above. Fitted with custody suites, a vehicle bay, a firing range and a canteen. Sadly, for one of Murder Mile's much lauded and recently promoted temporary police sergeants, it doesn't have a bar. What do you mean you don't serve Guinness? Well, what else am I meant to have for breakfast? In 2013, when London had 136 police stations, owing to repeated government cutbacks 
as well as the loss of backroom staff and officers on the beat. Now there is barely one police station for each of the city's 32 boroughs. With many buildings close to the public, including this one. So should you wish to report a crime, here you'll find a locked door, an empty office, and a sign redirecting you elsewhere. Before its demise, many murderers were interrogated by detectives at Hoburn. As is standard police procedure, their details were recorded, questions were asked, and responses taped as part of an ongoing investigation. Every suspect had the right to say no comment, but one man did not. But this was not a confession of remorse, but a chance to brag about his crimes, which directly led to his conviction. As it was here, on the afternoon of Friday the 17th of September 2004, that Daniel Gonzalez confessed to four murders. But who did the talking? His ego or his illness? I'll be famous. Like those kids who did the shooting at Columbine, man. Mine's a big fucking story. Yeah, I'm going to be front page news. Desperate for fame. Daniel's murders were the perfect combination of sickening and salacious for the tawdry tabloids. As with tales of blood, knives, a Jason mask, and callous soundbites of how he sliced up his petrified prey, they cemented his infamy with a catchy nickname, the Freddy Krueger Killer. Only his crimes went mostly unknown as with Hurricane Francis ripping through the Caribbean, two earthquakes unleashing a double tsunami in Japan, and the hunt for the Iraqi fugitive Saddam Hussein, as well as the recent arrest of the Camden Ripper and the investigation into Harold Shipman, one of the world's most prolific serial killers. His timing was terrible. In comparison, Daniel was small fry, the press didn't care, and the British public were focused on the X-Factor final. That morning, forensics teams were at three different locations across London. The murder of Kevin Malloy in Tottenham, the attempted murder of Kumas Costantino in Hornsey, and the brutal double murder of Derek and Jean Robinson in Highgate. But as yet, they were unaware of Peter King and Marie Harding. Having issued a description of this unnamed assailant, Daniel was being hunted by the police. Only by then, he was already in Soho. Friday the 17th of September 2004, at 12.10pm. Later discovered, in his bag, at the left luggage kiosk at King's Cross Station. In a handwritten note, Daniel had declared, I will be a serial killer. I'm gonna make sure I get to London and kill as many old Bill as soon as I can. At 12.11 p.m., 
he entered exit 1 at the Tottenham Court Road tube station. Being lunchtime, it was quiet, and being casually dressed, he blended in. Except that in his jacket, he had an 8 and a 12 inch kitchen knife. And although this spree killer had already murdered four, any more would be a bonus. At 12.13pm, at the ticket office, he purchased a travel card which would give him a day's travel across the London network. Only it wouldn't get him home. So where he was going, we don't know. And having been unable to take a shower, he paid using a £20 note, which just like his hands and his clothes, was stained with blood. If he had used a ticket machine, he'd have gone undetected. But he didn't. At 12.14pm, as Daniel walked through the turnstile and headed towards the northern line, staff spotted a bite mark on his neck, a wound to his leg and his arm, and informed the British Transport Police. At 12.16pm, Daniel stood on platform 4 of the southbound northern line, waiting for the next tube. Maybe to a major transport hub like Waterloo or Clapham Junction, to tourist spots like the South Bank or Leicester Square, or simply to furnish this blood-hungry spree killer with a carriage full of captive victims trapped inside a train whose doors lock the passengers in once it's in transit. The time was 12.17pm. With his heart pounding, two knives in his jacket, and four sinister voices in his head, with people on the platform, at least one more life to take, and two police officers approaching from behind. There he stood, he was silent, and then, He stopped. Quietly and without any fuss, Daniel gave up. He was searched, handcuffed, and with no need to call for backup, the two officers calmly escorted him to the concourse, where Daniel was arrested. But why did his killing spree stop? Was he bored? Were the voices silent? Were four victims enough? Was he too desperate to share his sordid tale with the world? Or as a fan of horror movies, like Friday the 13th, Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street, is it significant that Platform 4 is where lycanthrope David Kessler slaughtered a London commuter in the film An American Werewolf in London? Or is this just a coincidence? At roughly 12.45pm, Daniel was processed at Hoban Police Station, held in a custody suite, and later interviewed, initially in connection with the attack on Kumis, but later he would confess to others. 
and although he would plead to the lesser offence of manslaughter by diminished responsibility, it was during these interviews in which he bragged, he laughed, and he recounted the killings with a joyous sense of sadistic relish that Daniel's own words would ultimately be used to convict him of murder. I wanted to be Freddy Krueger for the day. To kill as many people as possible. I slit her throat. I had to carve him up. I felt clean. Orgasmic. I lived bloodbath. Kill him. And once his diary was read out aloud in court, it would be impossible for a jury to sympathise with this boy's plight as a paranoid schizophrenic. I got that old bitch proper. Bloodbath. Pouring out of our throat, boy. I gotta say this. It felt really, really, really good. One of the best things I've done in my life. Upon his arrest, police headed to his home in Nap Hill. Hearing the news, his mother Leslie was clearly distraught that her worst fear... Words she had repeated again and again and again had come true. But across the next few hours, she patiently sat and furnished the police with a full history of Daniel. She told them everything, from the drugs to the crimes to the voices and his psychotic episode just a few days before. And even after everything she had endured over the last two decades, with grace and dignity, she expressed remorse for the victims and their families. And yet it seemed that remorse was something her son could only achieve when it suited his need. But was this lack of compassion down to Daniel's ego or his illness? On Wednesday the 22nd of September 2004, Daniel appeared at Highbury Magistrates Court, charged with the murders of Derek and Jean Robinson. He gave his name, his address, and the police were authorised to hold him for a further three days, pending their investigation. He was described as unresponsive and vacant. On Thursday the 23rd of September, Daniel was returned to Highbury Magistrates Court to be charged with the following additional offences. Burglary, grievous bodily harm and the attempted murder of Kumis Costantino, the attempted murder of Peter King and the murders of Kevin Malloy and Marie Harding. But being described as highly emotional and badly behaved, like a little boy wrapped up in his own self-pity, Daniel refused to attend. So the judge, Mrs. Dorothy Quick, transferred the hearing to his cell in the court's basements. With four security standing guard, the prosecution and the defense by the door, and the judge in his cell, Daniel was asked to give his name, age and address, but he refused. Instead, he lay motionless on the floor, his legs stiff and rigid, his head fixed at an odd angle, and his vacant eyes glaring into the emptiness. As for the first time in almost a week, he said nothing. But was Daniel mentally unwell, 
or simply playing the insanity card. While awaiting trial, Daniel was remanded at HMP Belmarsh, a Category A prison full of murderers, rapists and terrorists. If infamy was his goal, he should have relished his bad boy status in a sea of like-minded sadists. Only quickly, it became abundantly clear that Daniel needed psychiatric help. There was a dramatic shift in his mental state. He was aggressive, lunging at prison staff, so much so that they needed a six-man unlock. Six prison officers, sometimes in riot gear, just to enter his cell. On the 15th of October 2004, after three weeks of Belmarsh, Daniel was moved to Broadmoor, a maximum security psychiatric hospital at Crowthorne in Berkshire. For a boy who dreamed of being a serial killer, surely, in his own twisted way, his incarceration at this infamous institution for the criminally insane, where the deranged legends he had only ever read about, like Peter Sutcliffe, John Strafen, Robert Knapper, Kenneth Erskine, David Copeland, Robert Maudsley, and Anthony Hardy, could now become his equals. Surely this would have been Daniel's crowning glory. But it wasn't. Upon admission to Broadmoor, Dr. Das, the forensic consultant psychiatrist, would later state, he needed continuous seclusion and observation around the clock. He was withdrawn, unpredictable and violent. We really couldn't understand the psychopathology of what was going on underneath. Across his hospitalisation, Daniel was moved to the Luton Ward, to the Isis Ward and to the Henley Wards at Broadmoor, as each had their own specialisation to cater for his ever-changing illness. And yet, each ward's psychiatrist had a very clear consensus that Daniel was suffering from a psychotic illness. Initially, whether it was schizophrenia was uncertain, as when Daniel was treated with antipsychotic medications, he didn't react well. It brought down the agitation and he became quite placid. But we saw a man who had extra-paramedial symptoms, such as tremors, muscle spasms, and full-body rigidity. Sometimes, he was as stiff as a board. Which is why originally, Daniel had chosen to self-medicate with street drugs. Dr. Das would later state, he was on the highest level of observation, which required him to be at arm's length of at least two members of staff 24 hours a day for the first 18 months. A measure which even Dr. Edward Petch, consultant psychiatrist, would admit was very, very unusual. Within Broadmoor, I have never seen anything like it. But for Daniel's safety and well-being, it was essential. This was the level of care that Daniel and his mother had spent years pleading for. To have proper care, you need a doctor to follow your path 
and to cross-examine you thoroughly. If I was seeing someone two or three times a week, at least that's something. And now, he finally had it. During his hospitalization, Daniel was required to attend his trial at the Old Bailey. And although it was his own words which would ultimately convict him, what the jury saw before them was a psychopath. But what the doctor saw was a boy in distress. Having given his testimony in court, Daniel was returned to his cell at Broadmoor and was kept under 24-hour arm's-length observation. Given his emotional state, and his threats to kill someone or himself. But even with the best care, in the best facility, there will always be lapses in concentration. Dr. Das would state, I have never encountered that level of self-harm before. As Daniel was lying in bed, silent and still, under the cover of his bedsheet, he sunk his teeth deep into his cubital fossa, the fleshy depression of his elbow's pit, severing the muscles and rupturing an artery. He lost several liters of blood and was lucky to survive. But even after this, he would still exclaim, I want to die. Dr. Petch, the admitting psychiatrist, later said, I have never seen anyone bite himself with that ferocity. In the space of a year, that was the third time that Daniel had tried to take his own life. And so severe was his psychopathy that once again he was moved to a specialist care unit at Broadmoor. But if this suicide attempt was just a ploy to avoid a lengthy prison sentence... Was his life worth taking the risk? By September 2005, one year into his hospitalization, although his mood still swung wildly from elation to depression, he lashed out, harmed himself and still heard voices, with his account of the murders ranging from self-pity to uncontrollable grief. Doctors described Daniel as a changed man. Thanks to high doses of antipsychotic and mood-stabling medications used to treat schizophrenia. Leslie would state, This is the best he has ever been. We've not seen Danny so well since he was 15. But the jurors wouldn't see any of this. On Tuesday the 28th of February 2006, the trial began at the Old Bailey before Judge Anne Goddard, QC. The evidence that Daniel had committed these murders was irrefutable. But what divided opinion was his motive. Was he bad or mad? For the defense, Dr. Edward Petch agreed that Daniel's illness was atypical and the lack of acute episodes made diagnosis difficult. But that... In his expert opinion, Daniel exhibited a degree of disturbance which was without parallel in my experience. Yeah. 
arguing that he was a paranoid schizophrenic, that he should be found guilty of manslaughter owing to diminished responsibility and treated accordingly, stating that he is one of the sickest patients I have ever seen. As for the prosecution, with a wealth of compelling evidence on their side, including the knives, the mask, the victims, the diary, and Daniel's own words, as well as conflicting medical testimony from Dr. Philip Joseph, a psychiatrist who said it wasn't schizophrenia, but an antisocial personality disorder. The prosecution put forward that Daniel was a psychopath, hell-bent on a mission to commit murder. On Thursday the 16th of March 2006, after a three-week trial, the jury retired. But after just 90 minutes, they returned with a unanimous verdict. Daniel Gonzalez was found guilty of murder. They believed that drugs played a key part, that the voices in his head were fabricated, that he was not suffering from a mental illness, and that he had killed in cold blood. Sentenced on Friday the 17th of March, the relatives of the victims hugged each other as for the murders of Marie Harding, Kevin Malloy and Derek and Jean Robinson and the attempted murders of Peter King and Kumas Costantino. Daniel was given a whole life tariff, meaning he would never be released. Once again, Leslie and Daniel had been let down by a chronically underfunded mental health system, incapable of providing joined-up care over any period of time. But this sentence had one shining light, as although the jury didn't believe that Daniel was mentally ill, the judge would rule that until he was deemed fit, that he should spend the remainder of his sentence at Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital. Over the next few months, although Daniel was still considered as one of the most dangerous patients at Broadmoor, he continued to improve. He stopped self-harming and he moved to a lower-risk young person's unit called the Windsor Ward. His mother would say, he is so much better, but he has begun to wonder about what he did and where he is, and he has got depressed. Sometimes he says, I'm so sorry, Mum, I'm in here. With his appeal rejected and no chance of parole, Daniel's future looked hopeless. But as Dr. Petch would later state, he had killed four people, but we always felt there was one left, and that was himself. On Thursday the 9th of August 2007, just before 8am, as part of hospital protocol to observe any patients who were deemed to be a suicide risk, a nurse saw Daniel lying on his bed. She had no real fears, as over the previous week 
he seemed happy and settled. At a little after 8.20am, the nurse grew concerned as he had not collected his medication. Returning to his room, she found the walls spattered and his bed saturated with blood. Using the shattered edge of a CD case, Daniel had slashed both wrists deep. He could not be revived, and he was pronounced dead. At the inquest into his death, a consultant reiterated that Danny was one of the most disturbed and sick young men that has been treated at Broadmoor Hospital for years, and that the crimes he had committed and the sentence he had received had caused him great anxiety. Hence, his suicide. In March 2009, an independent review into his care by NHS Southwest concluded that Daniel had suffered from schizophrenia and that he was not treated successfully, but deemed to be a case of missed opportunities where lessons could be learned. No person or organization was held accountable. Whichever way you look at it, Daniel Gonzalez was a lost boy. To the jury, he was lost in a life of drugs and horror movies. To the tabloids, he was lost in a deluded fantasy of killing and blood. To his mother, he was lost in a system which was supposed to protect him. But to Daniel, he was just a little boy lost inside his own mind a prison he could never escape from and where no one would hear him scream. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. That was the final part of Daniel Gonzalez, The Lost Boy. Next week, a regular episode. As always, if you enjoyed that episode, there's some non-essential extra stuff after the break. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Kaylee Dodd and Lizzie D. Plus a thank you to Amanda Sims for your very kind donation via the Murder Mile donate button in the eShop. I thank you all. I pray that a truckload of Mr. Kipling cakes is accidentally delivered to your homes alongside a large tanker of freshly brewed but always hot tea. Yummy. Plus a thank you to everyone who leaves lovely five-star reviews, as us little podcasts can't survive without them. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Just having a stretch. Try not to stretch too much because last time I pulled a muscle in my leg. Oh, that really hurt. Oh, hello everyone. Welcome to Extra Mile. Oh, oh, it's an early one this morning. I would have done an, an afternoon record, which are fine. I'm getting used to those now. They're all right. But I've got a busy day today, got a lot to do. So uh, I did an early morning one to get it done. Oh, busy, busy, busy bee, busy, busy. Let's go and pop on a quaffy. A quapa quaffy. Uh, oh, hang on a mo. Oh, there we go. There we go. Water on. Oh, I'm going to make myself. I ran out of coffee too early. And you shouldn't do that in, in the morning, halfway through working, and all my coffee ran out. My brain wasn't working, and I was all over the shop, and I had to rely on water. And you need that zhuzh, don't you? You need the zhuzh. All I kept thinking about was a nice Costa coffee, which, according to Food Unwrapped, that was a program I was watching the other day, Costa coffee is like almost three to four times the amount of caffeine in it as most other coffees. Whoa, brilliant. That's what you need in life. A good old pick-me-up. Right, coming back. Water's on. Oh, lordy, lordy. Yeah. Oh, what have we got? Cake time. Oh, yeah. Uh, welcome to Extra Mile, everyone. If you're new to Extra Mile, this is non-essential. This is just waffle, bit of waffle, bit of chat, bit of a quiz, uh, some extra details about the case. But it's not essential. If, if, you're, not, if you're not a fan of uh, waffly stuff, switch off now. Not a problem at all. Uh, I'm about to tuck into, ooh, another, I've got a final Kit Kat orange. 104 calories. Not bad. A Kit Kat orange. And cake of the day from Morrison's is Congress Tart. Mmm. What does it say? It says, uh, sweet pastry filled uh, 
uh, sweet pastry tarts filled with raspberry jam and topped with macaroon style sponge. Ooh, there's four in there, and it says best before 22nd of July, but that's they're not going to last that long. They're not going to last until the end of today, I think. Um, so that's all good. Looking forward to that. Uh, just get uh, a busy week today. I'm trying to get myself ahead of the game because I've got my final uh, jabby McJab face on Friday. Looking forward to that, but it's early in the morning. So I'm trying to make sure I can get a lot done. So if I do start to feel a little bit shit... Uh, therefore it won't affect hopefully the timing of murder mile so today is wednesday wednesday morning yeah so uh that's all good slightly ahead of the game uh but i've got got to get into town for my eye appointment i've got a uh, uh my next eye appointment which is great it's going very well i'm glad for my eyes i went private i think i mentioned that last week which was very good i couldn't get in uh, via the nhs because obviously you know everything's in turmoil at the moment and you know the nhs are doing a fabulous job but there's a lot of backlog because of you know they can't get people in uh, so i as mentioned i went private uh, i thought it'd be more expensive than it was it's not it was actually quite affordable i was kind of shocked by that uh they're not trying to palm me off with unnecessary stuff i found them very professional very good and uh within the space of five weeks i've gone from literally calling them up to having uh, a consultation with the first consultant and then all of my tests and then the second consultation which went very well it's like three hours long we went through all the lenses we've ordered lenses the lenses have turned up i'm going in today to try them out and we've got a couple of couple of weeks of just tweaking them to try and get everything right but yeah it's going really well so that's five that's five weeks from call to new lenses in and the great thing is i've got a consultant for for life my old one retired which is unfortunately lovely boat but he retired he, he's yeah, oh, my water's done. Not my water, it makes it sound like I'm having a baby. I'm not. My water's done. There we go, my water's broke. Uh, Stirry McStirface, there we go, stirring of the tea. Yeah, my old consultant was brilliant, but he was close to retirement. I knew he was going to retire, and then when it came to lockdown, because he works by himself, he was just like, it's too much. You know, having to clean down the surgery after every patient. He's just like, I'm doing it all by myself. He's receptionist and he's the eye specialist. And Joey's doing all the stuff. He's just like, it's too much. It's time to retire. So that's fair enough. Luckily, my new consultant, uh, I, uh, do you know, I, I think I think I'm probably about 10 years older than him. So that's good. So <laughs> he's hopefully he'll be around for a good long while. And he's just, he's reassured me he will be around for a good long while, which is good. So we're going to do that. So that's going to be great. Uh, and later on, hopefully, I'm going to meet up with a, a mate of mine and have a couple of socially distant beers with my friend, Mr. Marco. Marco Beard. So that'll be good. Uh, so that's my life. Not much else going on. It's, it's weird, isn't it? When you you get on the phone to people, I do this all the time. You probably do the same. And you go, so what else is going on? And everyone goes, uh, uh, not much, really. We're kind of just plodding on, aren't we? We're kind of plodding through stuff. Uh, Murder Mile walks are still going on. I think we've done three now. They've been okay. They've been going all right. Tours until the end of the year, up until December the 12th. So don't forget, uh, the, the reason why I'm keeping these tours open is kind of because uh, people have got vouchers. So if you've got vouchers, uh, you've got until the 12th of December to use them up. Uh, I, everyone who has valid vouchers, I've sent you, uh, I've already sent you an email with kind of different options on there that you can use. 
if if your voucher expired during uh, 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 the, the the pandemic uh, and you haven't had a chance to use it, uh, message me anyway, and I can kind of if you want to use them up, I can still make them valid. That's not a problem at all. So I'll I'll just change the dates and then you can book them in. But we've only got tours until the twelfth of December. That's when they stop. So uh, it gives everyone like six months, hopefully, and hopefully um, the virus will play ball and we can all do this nice and safely. I'm not putting too many people on the tours. It's 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 maximum about 15 because I don't want it to become uh, convoluted and busy and, you know, a virus problem. So uh, we're just going to play this safe. Okay. Oh, shit, Michael, you haven't put... Um, Oh, okay, we're going to do the quiz questions, but the first quiz question, I haven't put the answer in, so I'm going to have to check that. Okay, let's do the quiz questions. As mentioned every week, uh, oh, where's my coffee? As mentioned every week, uh, some of these questions, I might edit this. I think this episode might be a bit longer than I need it to be. Oh, hot. So uh, I might edit some of the stuff out. Uh, so let's see. Okay, strap in, folks. Question number one. Who was the judge overseeing the trial at the Old Bailey? Question two. Which magistrate's court was Daniel charged at? Question number three. What street is Hoban Police Station on? I mean, technically it's on two. Technically it's on two different roads because it's on a corner. But which is it, as mentioned at the start of the program, which one is it listed on? Uh, question four: What plop? What plop? What platform on Tottenham Court Road tube was Daniel arrested on? Question five: uh, A scene from what film was shot there? Question six: Which British serial killer was arrested one year before before Daniel? Question seven. Before Broadmoor, Daniel was sent to which prison? Now, uh, I've mentioned two prisons in this episode, so this is the one just before he got sent to Broadmoor, not the prison he was sent to ages ago, uh, which was, let me just double-check, I haven't got it as a question. No, I haven't. So that was originally HMP Reading, which was when he was charged with burglary. This was which one was he sent to just before Broadmoor? Question eight. What did Daniel use to slit his wrists? Question nine. What size were the two knives that Daniel had on him when he was arrested? And question ten. What is a six-man unlock? Mm. We will answer those very shortly. Okay, let's dive into some extra stuff. Uh, to be honest, there's loads... There's loads more I could have put into this episode. You know, uh, a lot of the information was taken from the, the inquest into Daniel's kind of treatment at the end i've mentioned it throughout the episode but a lot of the details were in there a lot of the stuff that was in the press was just absolutely shambolic bullshit because uh, as always they just pick up on kind of the sensationalist stuff like the mask and the knives and oh freddy krueger which is why what i've realized is that people's perceptions of who daniel is is twisted by what kind of crappy newspapers they get their information from or, or the crap i'm sorry to say the crappy documentaries that are out there there's one out there that's just dog shit it's it's kind of some of it has got the handheld stuff where it's oh let's put in some creepy music oh he's walking along the street oh it's oh look oh we put it in slow motion oh yeah 
and and you know it, it's men who go oh look he's near an, an evil an evil man but you know when you when you bother to sit down and do the research and you look into how his his treatment over the years yes he's partially responsible for that but a big part of that is you know the the healthcare system that just uh, as as they say in that even in the report they say they ran out of ideas they didn't know what to do and you know it was a difficult diagnosis even like the the doctors at uh, broadmoor who were the specialists you know it took them almost a year of having him under full 24-hour observation for like 18 months trying out different medications before they could find a, a medication that was right for him before they could really diagnose what he was about and that's what he was crying out for he was saying i don't i don't want to be an outpatient i want to be an inpatient i need to be in i need someone to physically look at me every single day and and monitor you know and you can't do that when you're being bounced between different departments and different doctors so uh i've pulled out some uh pieces from uh the uh inquest that's on here uh so I'll, I'll just read read them straight so this is from dr petch edward petch who is one of the who is the admitting consult uh psychiatric consultant at broadmoor uh he was the the first psychiatrist that uh daniel saw at broadmoor but was the one who did most of the kind of the talking at the old bailey trial as well because he'd seen him for the longest period of time um dr petch told the investigation um, oh, this is, I, I pulled this out because this kind of explained Daniel's choice of victims. Um, Dr. Petch told the investigation he would attack at random. He would take a chance. Uh, we asked him what it was about and he hadn't really been able to tell us whether it was delusional misidentification or some sort of delusional psychotic thing going on. He just lashed out at whoever. There were a couple of uh, incidents where there were some minor provocations in that sort of way. Uh, but he would just generally lash out. He was very impulsive and predictable. This is to do with the attacks kind of uh, in Broadmoor as well. Uh, he was so unpredictable in terms of whether it was a particular time of day, a particular time, a particular day of the month, day of the week. It was pure, purely random. We tried to look at the pattern, uh, whether there was any particular members of staff, black, white, male, female, but we couldn't identify any function of, of the staff rank or anything. It just seemed to be those people uh, who were nearby got it. So the more you nursed him, the more you were likely to be hit because you were with him longer. It was really very difficult. So that seems to, that kind of tells us a lot about the victims themselves, kind of uh, the ones that he, he attacked and murdered, you know. Um, even though he said, you know, uh, he was kind of planning. He took uh, two days to plan. There is no planning on this. When you look at it, he's going in a random direction. We don't really know why he went to the places that he went to. He doesn't have any connection to them. He didn't have any connection to the victims. Do you know, he he, he would say that he, uh, do you know, he, he after Peter King, he tried to go for someone who was more vulnerable, which was Marie Harding, do you know, uh, an elderly lady, vulnerable by herself. But then, do you know, you look at him, he goes, to, uh, he breaks into a house which has got people in it. And, and he attacks Kevin Malloy, do you know, a, a guy who was described, uh, you know, a gentle giant. So much bigger than Daniel, do you know, much easier, but uh, to, to kind of defend himself. But, you know, he had to attack, attack him from behind. So it's weird. It's It's kind of, there's loads of opportunities where if Daniel wanted to attack, as mentioned in, in all the episodes, if he wanted to attack like, big numbers of people and just get his his kill count up and be arrested, because don't forget, that's what he wants. 
he wants to be arrested so he can kind of enjoy the kind of the moment of being a, a serial killer or a spree killer but he doesn't so it's it, it even with this it's hard to pin down exactly why he picked the people that he did i can hear meet meet sounds outside and it is it's swans we've got the swans and there's loads of signets outside and they're they're currently tapping on the boat going where's my breakfast uh, another bit that I pulled out was um, Dr. Petch also commented on the link between the homicides and Mr. Gonzalez's suicidal state of mind during the offences. Uh, he said, uh, I didn't pick up on whether there was uh, an acute suicidality at the time of the offences. I presume that during the offences themselves, he was very suicidal uh, because he could quite easily have turned the knife on himself at that point. It didn't appear... Um, it didn't happen, but it was only a hair's breadth. Sorry, this this uh, these quotes are really awkward and throwing me off because someone has written it, someone has typed it up, but instead of using commas uh, where you need to use commas, they've used speech marks, and it's really annoying. Uh, I hate when people don't don't know how to use punctuation properly. Uh, he said uh, he could have easily have ended up killing himself during the spree. Uh, he was called a serial killer in court, but he is more of a mass killer because it is like a spree killing. It is it, it is an all in one go in one episode. Uh, it was not one and then a couple of months later another one. If you look at the history of mass killings, uh, a very large number of them end up killing themselves at the scene or very soon afterwards. Uh, we can all think of well-known examples. Uh, so I would say this is this is a job uh, that has not yet been finished for him. Uh, he's got no idea why he did it. Uh, I am quite sure. I think the jury is still out on why he did it. Uh, although ultimately they, they made their decision in the end that uh, he was not mentally ill, uh, that it was uh, he was guided by drugs and his own kind of, you know, uh, selfish needs and things like that. But then again, you know, this is not to complain at the jury. The jury, you know, juries can only do what they're given. Do you know, I was foreman in the jury uh, ages ago on an assault charge. The guy in front of us definitely did it. Nasty piece of shit. Definitely did it. Uh, it was split into two charges. We couldn't hear the first charge because that was a different case. Uh, apparently, his mate had been charged with that. He definitely did it. He came in front of us. He was a nasty piece of shit. You knew it. We weren't allowed to know his offences, but you could just tell. Nasty piece of shit. But we had to find him uh, not guilty uh, because there was no evidence. There was no CCTV. There was no corroborative witnesses. Basically, there was nothing. So, uh, yeah... Uh, so do you know juries are only as good as the information put forward in front of them so uh yeah uh let's have a look oh so uh the uh the report came out uh the failings in the system uh there was a, a multi-professional review uh and they identified a number of failings and problems um oh dear the sun's just come out behind me and it's going to make me sneeze uh whoa. there we go um have a slurp of coffee while i'm doing this uh they said that the problems were lost opportunities to undertake full assessments uh which is true quite often there were opportunities where kind of daniel came forward and they could have sat down and given him a full assessment but they didn't as mentioned in the, in one of the first episodes in the first episode you know daniel turned up expecting a psychiatric assessment and what he got was a social worker just giving him a bit of a once over 
Um, he could have gone into hospital as an inpatient and been fully assessed, which he was when he was sectioned. But quite often when he was an outpatient, he wasn't fully assessed. He was just basically briefly looked at, which is when we got that doctor saying, yep, he's fine. Everything's OK. Um, uh, another recommendation said uh, the use of uh, several sets of case notes, as mentioned, so many different doctors, so many different notes. It's hard to corroborate them together. Uh, the difficulties in recruitment and attendance retention of staff the difficulties in recruitment and retention of staff in patch three and the reduced attendance of the consultant psychiatric at patch three meetings um these were the the crisis meetings so obviously uh you have different people at different meetings and kind of again as everyone's saying there's no consistency there you know it's all very well having people having a nice big meeting but if it's not the same people Meeting at different times, you're not going to get consistency. Uh, the lack of engagement with Mr. Gonzalez from specialist services and the fact their work was carried out in isolation from other services. Again, the same. Uh, the failure to formally involve his mother and to support her. No shit. I mean, that really is what... what uh, especially episode one is all about uh, the absence of a formal handover from the community, child and adolescent services to adult services good point he does actually go from uh when he hits 18 that's when everything goes it goes a little bit weird a lot of people do say that uh especially i got mates who work in services that kind of help children and they kind of just say by the time a child gets to 16 or 18 you know they have all the help that they need and then all of a sudden it just stops and there's no crossover point you've you've got to really push to get to the second to to um to be treated by adult services after you've been through uh children's services uh, let's have a little bit bit of a look at the arrest. Uh, this is a kind of an interesting thing. This is why I open with this in part one, but I really wanted us to come back to this at, at, at the end. Um, it's not very dramatic, but that's the whole point. It's kind of it makes you ask the question: if he is if he is a serial killer slash spree killer, he's got knives in his pocket. He's got uh, he wants to kill as many people as possible. He, he's talking about killing as many old Bill, i.e., policemen, as, as possible. Uh, he's in town, he's got knives on him, he's going into a tube, he could do a mass killing right there, but he doesn't. So why does he do all these things he do, does? He goes into uh, Tottenham Court Road, he buys a travel card with a £20 note. The £20 note is stained with blood, which would later be found to be Derek and Jean's blood. Uh, why does he use that? Why does he uh, Why does he not go to the ticket machine? Instead, he goes to a, a kind of a person in the booth who looks at the note. If you put it in the ticket machine, the machine won't see it. So why did he go there? We don't know. Um, why is he buying a travel card to get him around London? That doesn't get him home. Uh, he's heading away from King's Cross, which means he's not going back to collect his bag. He might be going in the direction of Waterloo, which could get him home. But if he was going home, uh, why didn't he buy a ticket back to Woking from there, which you can do? Uh, again, the platform, which platform I haven't mentioned deliberately. I'm getting good at this now. I'm remembering my questions. Um, this is uh, kind of weird as well. He goes down to the platform. He's got the knives on him. The transport police are coming near him. Uh, they don't really know a lot about him at this point. They don't know that he's a serial killer. All they know is that there's a guy down there. He's he's he handed over a uh, a note which had blood on it. He looks like the guy. Whether we know at this point, we're not too sure at this point whether he was confirmed as being the person that they were looking for in North London. 
It may not have happened at that point. It may, this Don't forget, this is that morning. It, things don't happen that fast. They may have found out afterwards. But all they know at that point is, he's, you know, the guy's a little bit bloody. Two uniformed officers go down there. Train approaches. Daniel goes to go on the train. The two British uh, transport police officers uh, get him and go, uh, can we have a word with you? He goes, yep, yeah, uh, what's the problem? And they, uh, they handcuff him on the station platform there. And he is escorted back up to the concourse. There's no fight. Even though he said, I'm going to kill as many old Bill as possible, he doesn't. He doesn't do any of that. So what was going on in his head? I mean, we know we know sometimes he, he can be a bit of a coward, as we've seen. in When he attacks from behind, he can stab and stab and stab. And he likes to believe that he's a massive serial killer. But as we've seen, when he is confronted, i.e. with Peter King, or with uh, Kumas and his wife, when, you know... They attacked him with a baby cradle and uh, a set of slippers. Do you know, he did, he had the knife on him. He could have attacked back, but he didn't. He ran. So uh, there is a, a sense of cowardice there. So uh, it's it's odd. It's odd. His arrest is just baffling. He could have gone on for a, a major massive killing there, but he didn't. Uh, and I, I think this is indicative of everything that's in there. Even though he said it was planned, none of this is planned. It's all kind of, it's random. It's all over the shop. If he really was wanting to be a serial killer, he would have planned it because you need to have that month's break in between in order to show that you are a serial killer. But what he was focused on was just being a killer, killing as many as possible. So, you know, he is a spree killer or, as Dr. Pesh said, nearer to being a mass killer uh because the 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 likelihood because of the amount of killings all in the same period of time uh and the likelihood is, is that he's probably going to kill himself that's a good point actually that dr pesh made that especially with a lot of mass killers that they do commit suicide afterwards and daniel very much was on the suicidal spectrum you can kind of see that with his kind of his psychotic episode a couple of days before when he was running around town you know jumping jumping off the bins trying to smash his own nose things like that you know knives all around the kitchen why were they there was he was he thinking about death thinking about killing other people was he thinking about killing himself um it's an odd one isn't it uh let's have a look oh yeah so um i didn't put this in the episode because as always you know sometimes sometimes it feels like the episode's going on too long and I always think half an hour is about the right amount of time for an episode. And sometimes, if it goes on too long, you just think, oh, just extraneous information. Hence, Extra Mile. So, uh, on Wednesday the 5th and Thursday the 6th of July, 2006, uh, Daniel's... Uh, da- there was an appeal uh, of Daniel's sentence at the Court of Appeals. So... Uh, Lord Justice Latham, Lord Justice Irwin and Sir Richard Curtis, not the one who wrote uh, Notting Hill, uh, sitting at London's Criminal Appeal Court, uh, they heard uh, that Daniel should be given the charge of uh, should be given a chance to have parole because by this point he's he's been put under. uh, It was a 30 year tariff, but then it had been uh, upgraded to a whole life tariff. Um, uh, Let's. What they they were saying is, what they wanted is, even though, yes, he should go to prison for what he's done, and yes, he should be uh, sent to Broadmoor, that he should be given a glimmer of hope. Because given the the fact that Daniel has a long history of mental health problems, he's relatively young. Do you know, he's only 24 years old. He's been in and out of kind of the mental health system for years, and he suffers with depression and things like that. You have to give him a sense of hope. Do you know, you can't just lock him away and say, fuck you, you're never coming back. You've got to give him a kind of a sense of hope there. Um, 
unfortunately, um, uh, the appeal was denied. So I'll read what the judge said. Um, oh, sorry, I got burpees again. Uh, coffee burpees, lovely. They're always the best, aren't they? Uh, Lord Justice Latham uh, disagreed that there should be uh, that he uh, uh, that he should be given the right to have parole and refused permission against appeal uh, against the sentence, saying it is in our judgment. Uh, abundantly apparent that these offences were premeditated because of the repeated acquisition of knives before each attack. He showed no remorse for the killings, laughing when he described Dr. Robinson's killing to medical staff at Broadmoor where he was detained. This shows his conduct was driven by a perverse enjoyment of the power to kill people and his sadistic pleasures. The appellant derived, uh, i.e. Daniel, uh, derive pleasure from his actions in the cruel killing of people he is highly unpredictable and it is likely and he is likely to attack people or cause harm to others in the future there was ample material before the sentencing judge to support the imposition of a whole life sentence Con consequently the application is refused so basically the uh the appeals judge just basically felt the same as the jury that you know he was just a, 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 a twisted young boy who loved uh, was obsessed with killing and doesn't really see him as mentally unwell even though even though everyone is sending him back to broadmoor psychiatric prison so everyone's saying he's not mentally unwell and yet they're saying oh but he but he is you know he is unwell so we will send him to prison but we won't give him a, a, a right to a have a chance at an appeal um so let's just see as mentioned uh so um uh daniel uh, when he was at broadmoor he'd been moved through a series of wards there was the luton ward which was the admissions ward then the kind of the isis ward which is the kind of the the more high dependency ward uh and then he was moved to the henley ward um but uh about 17 days before his death he was moved to the windsor ward uh, which was kind of uh, middle of July 2007. Uh, that was the uh, a young person's uh, lower risk ward. Um, uh, he was still hearing voices, but you know, he, everyone said he he was seeming quite calm. He wasn't harming himself anymore. He seemed to be doing a lot better. Uh, this lower risk ward, the kind of young person's ward, he was interacting with people. He was listening to music. He'd become quite placid, not kind of docile as in drugged up but you know people could have conversations with him you know he seemed to be doing a lot better when he was there uh which which is uh, even though he was still on a 30 minute watch uh because he was a suicide risk so do you know they were pretty much doing everything that they they could do you know don't forget they have a lot of people there you can't you can't they'd had him on 18 month 24 hour two person arm's length watch for 18 months so, you know, and that must have a detrimental effect on his mental well-being as well. Because you think about it, he can't shower by himself. He can't poo by himself. He can't sleep by himself. Someone's always next to him. So, you know, as he starts to improve, as they're giving him better medication, as he starts to calm, they're kind of giving him his little bit of freedom back. Don't forget, he doesn't have freedom because he can't go home. He can't. He's not going to be really released from prison because of the because of the judges. So basically, they're trying to give him as much freedom as they can without you know uh, uh hurting him uh so he's on 30 minute watch by that point which is still a lot still a lot he's been checked every 30 minutes every day uh 
Dr. Petch would say, uh, I think uh, we felt that given his history, at that moment he was generally trying to kill himself. Uh, uh, he felt uh, uh, his was a job not complete. He, he had allegedly killed four people and had tried to kill six, and we felt there was there was still one more left, and that was himself. And he would not stop until he succeeded. Uh, let's go down. So as mentioned, uh, morning of the 9th of August, nurses became concerned because he uh, hadn't collected his medication. A nurse had already gone past like just before. Uh, the nurse was Natsia Gazambwe. I didn't put that in the episode because I knew I'd trip over that name. Um, uh, had a look through the window, saw him just before eight o'clock. Um, he seemed to be fine. He was kind of half naked, lying on his bed. Uh, seemed to be okay. Uh, but the the patients were about to be woken up about eight o'clock, so, which is why they were doing their kind of rounds at that point. Uh, between 8.20 and 8.30, nurses became kind of concerned that he hadn't come to collect his medication. That was part of the routine, that you know, doors open, everyone comes and collects their medication. Uh, and when they went in, he had, uh, he had killed himself. He, they had said uh, he had been dead for roughly half an hour. So it looks like by the time the nurse had kind of gone past and looked at him, uh, he, he was fine. After that, he had killed himself. But, you know, door shut, no one heard anything. He didn't make any sounds. Um, he died short, shortly afterwards, uh, bled to death. Uh, there was a two-day inquest into uh, the death of Daniel Gonzalez, as has to happen. You know, if someone dies in uh, custody, there has to be an inquest into that. Uh, two-day inquest into the death was opened uh, at the Guildhall in Windsor, Windsor, led by the coroner, Peter Bedford. The inquest heard evidence from staff nurses... <coughs> Roger Coles, who was a nurse at Broadmoor for 33 years and was so shocked by the scene that he has not worked there since. Uh, they also uh, had in uh, the nurse who uh, who found him that morning. Uh, I think that's it. No, we've already used that quote in there. Uh, as I say, you know, everyone repeatedly says, even though like at the trial, you know, people going, we don't think he's mentally ill, we think he's fine, because you know, they're seeing one side. On the other side, what you've got is mental health professionals at Broadmoor, not just any old crappy hospital where they have to have a bit of a psychiatric unit in there just because, you know, it's for whatever reason. You know, these are specialists in what they do. This is their job. They do it 24 hours a day. They're not, not like a GP who's like, does does piles for one patient and then a, a veruca and then and then maybe some mental health this is a specialist these specialists who do it and multiple specialists at broadmoor are saying danny is one of the most disturbed sick young men that we've ever treated at broadmoor so um it's kind it's kind of odd isn't it which is uh, you know Kind of sad, sad for him and his family as well. Uh, I'll do a little bit on the on the uh, independent investigation afterwards. Uh, Lucy Scott Moncrief, who wrote the report, said at the time, this was a case where things went wrong early on <coughs> and did not recover. Overall, Mr. Gonzalez was not treated successfully. We cannot say with any certainty uh, that they could have been... Uh, but we can and do say that the way he was treated was not likely to succeed and did not succeed. 
Gonzalez had nearly 60 appointments with doctors and psychiatrists over seven years. Uh, and in a desperate appeal, his mother wrote to her MP asking whether her son had to kill someone before he uh, before he was given the proper treatment. She also wrote to the uh, the chairwoman of uh, NHS Southwest. Uh, I think that's it. Um... Uh, yeah, in the in the 2009 inquiry, uh, they they said we are satisfied that Mr. Gonzalez suffered with schizophrenia. Well, there you go. Even though at the trial it was found, they they said he was he didn't suffer from schizophrenia, but the inquest said, oh yes, he did. Uh, uh, as with the uh, obviously the, uh, a lot of the mental health organisations, uh, NHS. Uh, uh, denied responsibility for this. They said there was no direct link between the, his illness and the shocking attacks. Uh, da, 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 uh, sorry, there's loads. Of, but oh, uh, his 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 mother Leslie saw it differently. Uh, uh, the problem was not inadequate law or a lack of diagnosis, but inadequate care. She compiled a, a 76-page complaint to the NHS, stating this is uh, this is not that the present mental health act has failed but that many professionals failed to implement it we met individual decent caring professionals but even they could not sustain support uh, they like us and daniel were failed by a system that is underfunded and incapable of providing joined up care i think i put bits of that throughout the series uh oh, i think that's it yeah that that that'll do that uh, I think pretty much everything is in the episode. I've put in a lot into this episode, so uh, I hope you enjoy. Oh, right, hang on. I'm going to do the answers to the questions, but I'm going to have to go back and uh, double, double check something because I didn't put it in the episode. Oh, what was her bloody name? There she is. Okay. <laughs> Glad it's in the episode. Right, let's do answers to the questions. Question number one. Who was the judge overseeing the trial? It was Judge Anne Goddard QC. Just had to check that. Which magistrate's court... Oh, question number two. Which magistrate's court was Daniel charged at? It was Highbury Magistrate's Court. Question number three. What street uh, is Hoban Police Station on? Oh, I'm going to stretch. Um, it's on Lambs Conduit Street. Uh, it's on on the corner of Theobald's Road, but if you look at the address, it's actually Lamb's Conduit Street, because that's where the entrance is. Ooh, burpees. Question four. What platform on uh, Tottenham Court Road Tube was Daniel arrested on? It was platform four on the southbound northern line. Uh, on Patreon, I've done a little video on there. I, I, I was going into town early to do one of the tours. I was on the Tube anyway, because I had to... Uh, I was all masked up, and then I thought, oh, great, while I'm here, I'll just do a quick video, and then I'll bugger off before people turn up and start breathing everywhere. Ugh. Question five. A scene from what film was shot on Platform 4? It was An American Werewolf in London. Uh, whether that was something that was in Daniel's head, whether we knew that, we don't know. It just, it just seems kind of weird that of all the places in London that he picked, he picked place where a scene from the American werewolf in London was shot 
Do you know, he likes horror movies. It just seems odd. If he, if, if the, if he would have been at Notting Hill outside Richard Curtis's Blue Door, I wouldn't have put this in the episode because it would be irrelevant. But it just seems weird that that, that platform, that line, that station just seems weird. Uh, America Wealth, of course, was also shot in various other places uh, around London, including Piccadilly Circus. And it has one of the best scenes in there when when David Kessler goes to watch a porno. And uh, uh, there's a uh, have a, a watch. It's very good. There's a fake porno that's in there with uh, Brenda Bristol's, and it's very funny. <laughs> it's very funny. Best, best, worst dialogue ever. I might, I might try and sneak it into the episode. I, I'm not too sure. Uh, question six: Which British serial killer was arrested one year before Daniel? That was Anthony Hardy, the Camden Ripper. And there's a lot of similarities uh, between Anthony Hardy and Daniel Gonzalez. If you think about the first case with Anthony Hardy, Anthony Hardy had, uh, he'd murdered his first victim, but uh, throughout, if you go back to the, the episodes about the four faces of the, of the Camden Ripper, you can see how he's, he's manipulating the system. And there, there was a kind of a lot of talk about whether Daniel Gonzalez had read up a lot on Anthony Hardy and about how Anthony Hardy had manipulated the system to make mental health professionals believe that he wasn't he wasn't a psychotic that he was just an alcoholic uh that and that taking him off alcohol would solve it so if you think about it with the first case when he murdered that that young lady um he was a, he was a, you know he went into a psychiatric unit and a couple of months later he was released even though he'd committed murder he'd been released because obviously, you know, the pathologist had said it wasn't a murder. Uh, but also, Anthony Hardy has gone, I'm not psychotic, I'm just an alcoholic. If I stay off the booze, I'll be fine. Uh, question seven. Before Broadmoor, Daniel was sent to which prison? That is HMP Belmarsh. Uh, lots of terrorists there. Oh, lovely. Uh, question eight. What did Daniel use to slit his wrists? It was a broken CD case. Question nine. What size were the two knives that Daniel had on him when he was arrested? It was an 8-inch and a 12-inch knife. And question ten. What is a six-man unlock? It is six prison officers, sometimes in riot gear, used, uh, needed to uh, enter a violent prisoner's cell. So that's that. That's that done. Lots to edit. Lots to edit and then I'm going to get into town and do all my stuff and pick up a mate's birthday present, which I made ages ago, but it's only just turned up because I had to get someone else to make the rest of it for me. Very annoying. Going to meet Marco, going to visit my eye specialist, get my new lenses and hopefully be back home later on. So that'll be good. So that's that episode done. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I'm going to wrap up now. Now it's going to go really weird for me because I've spent good couple of hours just talking into this microphone talking 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 and now it's about to stop and i'm gonna have silence in this boat for a long time it's very it's a weird feeling when when the episode stops but anyway that's that hope you enjoyed that have yourself a good week stay safe be good lots of love bye hold up 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.